Ready? Let's pray. Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured and how he swore an oath to the Lord, making a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not allow my eyes to sleep or my eyelids to slumber until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard of the ark in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let's go to his dwelling place. Let's worship at his footstool. Rise up, Lord. Come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. May your priests be clothed with righteousness, and may your faithful people shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your offspring on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my decrees that I will teach them, their sons will also sit on your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here because I have desired it. I have abundantly blessed its food. I will satisfy its needs with bread. I will clothe its priests with salvation and its faithful people will shout for joy. There I will make a horn grow for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his, enemy, I will clothe his enemies with shame but the crown he wears will be glorious. Uh, a couple of things as, we, uh, as you look at that psalm, when it, uh, um, it has a very strong context to it, uh, talking about the building of the temple. Uh, David, won, David had a realization that he's living in a, in a house um, and uh, the temple is in a tent. Uh, and so he desires to build a house uh, for the Lord. And, uh, and so you, you, you have that in verses 3 and 4, that, that desire that David had that he wanted to build a temple for the Lord. Um, and, you know, he was deeply bothered uh, by, you know, the fact that he's living in this honor and comfort. And uh, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is, is kind of dwelling in, in a tent. And the Ark is very, uh, it's very important uh, in the life of Israel. Uh, the Ark was very much the... the the sign of the presence of God uh, among the people. And so when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, <clears throat> there's a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, and it rested over the ark. You know, and so, you know, it's it one of those moments, you know, maybe you've had this experience where you're like, I wonder if God is with me. You know, for the Israelites, they're like, I wonder if God is with us. And then they look, oh yeah, there he is, you know, type of a thing. Um, and, uh, and so the ark had that, that message to them and uh, um, at one point the Ark of the Covenant was taken uh, in battle by the Philistines um, the, uh, uh, the the Israelites had gone out to war against the Philistines without God's blessings and they lost and they lost the Ark and there's a whole bunch of neat stuff that happens with that. And, uh, and you can read about that in 1 Samuel um, uh, chapter 6 and 7. Uh, and I encourage you to definitely check that out. Um, it's one of those, those fun parts of the Bible where, like, you know, God's kicking butt. Um, but uh, when they return the Ark of the Covenant, um, some things happen and the people are so afraid of it. And David is actually even afraid. He, he says... Um, not coming to Jerusalem. And so they take it to Jair, which is a little bit northwest of Jerusalem. And it, it, was, it was there for like 20 years. You know, they, they didn't bring it into the, the capital until they, the, the temple was built. And... Um, I was thinking yes, but I might not be right. Because they captured Jerusalem, Jerusalem wasn't true. Right. I'm going to have to, we're, we will have to look at 1 Samuel in uh, you know, our free time and, uh, and check that out. But I'm not remembering for sure. I thought so, but I, 
I could very easily be wrong about that. Um, one of the other things to, uh, to point out, and when it mentions the anointed one in here, the Hebrew word there is the word Mashiach, uh, which is where we get the word Messiah. And that first instance uh, in verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. There is definitely a, uh, a reference to the king. You know, kings and prophets and priests were anointed. And this is talking about David. But because David had this great, 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 great grandson who was kind of important. Maybe you've heard of him. His name was Jesus. Um, there, there's another twist in that, especially as it gets mentioned uh, again later on in the psalm. And it talks about... Uh, God's anointed one and this eternal covenant that God uh, promises to his people. Um, but it is the same word for both, so you just kind of have to infer when, the, when it switches from lowercase to capital. Or maybe it's both. You know, there's a lot of, of, of times that when we look at prophecies, um, there's a both and. You know, there's, so there's an immediate this is going to happen here and now, but it's also, there's this bigger picture that's connected to it. You know, so um, a, little, a little bit of both going on there. So anything else about the Psalm before we jump into the, uh, into Romans? In that case, anything from last week, you wanna make sure that we remember. Um, in that case, we're going to hopefully finish Romans 9. I do know that there will be a time where we're going to be interrupted. Um, there is a, a class going on looking at the, uh, the ways that we keep people safe. Uh, we have a, an emergency management committee uh, for the congregation. And um, so they're looking at different things that, uh, uh, that we put here in order to um, respond to different emergencies. So if you look at the wall back there, there's a little flip chart next to the hand sanitizer. You know, there are instructions for a variety of different emergencies that might arise. You know, and it's just kind of one of those things that uh, uh, we started a while back, uh, just kind of, you know, thinking about what kinds of things could go wrong and what might we do to help people to be safe. Um, and for the most part, the things on there, I'm not, I'm not concerned about at all. However, um, we have had medical emergencies in the worship service, uh, even during communion. And, uh, and you know what I do when there's an emergency during communion? I keep distributing communion because that's my job. And there are other people who, you know, they're, they're doing that. And I know that they have a plan and that, you know, things are being taken care of and the person is being taken care of. So uh, it, it's a good thing. Um, anyhow, they're, gonna, they're touring and they're looking at where the exits are and everything and you know, showing people what to do. Um, so they're going to come through here at, at some point. So in the reading of Romans, we're on Romans chapter 9, verse 30. And uh, it, it, it is the last three, four verses of uh, Romans chapter 9. However, one of the things that we're experiencing in Romans chapter 9 is the, uh, the unfortunate and unintended consequences of adding chapters and verses to a letter. Remember that when Paul was writing, he didn't say chapter 1, verse 3, verse 4. You know, those are all added after the, after the, um, uh, the letter was written. In fact, they were added in the Middle Ages, long after. And so um, there's actually a bit of interpretation that takes place when you think about where do you break up chapters and verses. Now, are chapters and verses really helpful? Oh, yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, they're a very good tool for us to help us to study, to know the scriptures, um, but sometimes there's problems. And uh, I put an example below from uh, Ephesians chapter 5 that you can check out at some point. 
But um, for now, I'd like you to turn the page and look at that image that is on that next page. What you see there uh, is the end of the Gospel of Luke. That's kind of that very top of the page, and then you see the little break there. Uh, that's the beginning of the Gospel of John. This is a papyrus, so this is a very early copy of the Gospel of um, Luke and Gospel of John. Most of the papyri uh, are parts of the Gospels. We don't have uh, any of the um, original manuscripts from really anything in the Bible. It's all copies. And, and uh, one of the things that we really like about the papyri in terms of um, uh, the New Testament, anyhow, uh, is that you know, these are very old and we kind of assume that the older they are, the closer they are to the original. You know, and so um, if you look really closely at that, what do you notice about the way that they uh, put the script in there? Running. There are no spaces. There is no punctuation. Now, if you're used to reading this, you actually begin to, you know, if you're translating it, you begin to supply punctuation. There, there are hints and, and clues within the, uh, the text itself that tell you I'm dealing with a question, I'm dealing with a statement, you know, um, all of these kinds of things. Um, but for us trying to translate that into English, uh, we are supplying punctuation. We are supplying the, the, the breaks in terms of where paragraphs should go and, and, and things like that. You know, and so what I'm telling you is we are interpreting the text. There's no red print either. That's because Jesus didn't originally speak in red. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, um, so, I mean, this, this stuff is challenging. Um, I mean, I know, I know John chapter 1 pretty well. And even, even at that, I was looking, I'm like, where are the breaks? Um, and and it's, it's tough. You know, so the people who, who do the work with the, these originals, these are some really smart and, and, and talented people. So what we are talking about is all that we got there. We are talking about the interpretation from these original copies of the scriptures. Right. Well, it's not an original copy. I mean, it is it, it's an old, old copy. Okay. Um, you know, and, uh, and so um, to bring this into, into English, then you're, you're going to be doing some interpreting in terms of where exactly the lines should break and, you know, where the thoughts should go. And it takes another step when we part, start putting chapters and verses in. And I think that there is a good argument to say that 9.30 probably should be 10.1. That what Paul is doing is he's actually just concluded one bit and he's moving into uh, another part of his argument in the letter that these last three verses introduce and take us through 10.15. You know, um, does that change the actual content of anything that's being said and, you know, you know, like the inspiration of the text itself. No, I'm not saying that at all. You know, so please don't, you know, think, you know, well, they've got it all wrong or it's all messed up or anything like that. But, it, you know, it, it can influence, what, the way that we format things can influence uh, the way that we interpret the text. There's also a danger, though, if you're only looking one segment of the text, it skews it even more. Yeah. Even if we look at a primary source from, say, the American Revolution, Mm -hmm. You'd be led to believe that everything happened because of this one thing when something else precipitated. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons I think it's important for us to read broadly from the scriptures. Um, and uh, I think that this is one of the challenges of, uh, of Christianity today. Um, I mean, present company accepted, obviously. Um, Christians today are pretty biblically illiterate. Um, we, we don't know what the texts say, and we're not nearly as familiar with them as previous generations were. Um, 
and you know, and this is something that across history has ebbed and flown. Um, you know, it, it's 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 you know, you, you can either be like, you know, let's kick the people because they don't know the Bible, or you can just recognize people don't know the Bible, so how do we help people, you know, know it? Yeah. When Luther translated, made the first translation So, the first thing that we do have to make clear is Luther wasn't the first one to try to bring um, into the vernacular of the, of the people at the time. There were people like William Tinsdale that were around who, who were bringing it into English and others who tried to do this too. Um, but no, he did not work from the Latin. Uh, he went back to the Greek and to the Hebrew. And those are a little bit different in terms of, of how they're handled. Um, the Hebrew text is something that has been handed down from generation to generation as a whole. You know, so from you know, Genesis all the way through Malachi, uh, although they order it differently, uh, that whole body has been copied, you know, time out of memory uh, and, and handed down from generation to generation uh, in the Jewish faith. You know, so there were copies of that that were available. And so when Luther translated the Old Testament, that's what he worked from. The New Testament is different in that um, it, it's, in a sense, it's a composite text. And so there was a guy uh, around at Luther's time, his name was Erasmus. And Luther and Erasmus had a complex relationship with each other. There were things they really appreciated about each other, but then they also kind of went at each other. Um, if you've ever heard of the bondage of the will, one of Luther's most famous uh, writings, that was an argument against Erasmus. But what Erasmus is best known for is he took all of these texts that were available uh, of the New Testament in the original language, Greek, and he worked them together to say this is most likely, based on you know, the comparisons, the original text. Um, and it's pretty good what he put together, actually. Uh, but he didn't have all of the documents that we have now. Um, and so uh, what we have now is a little bit different, um, but not substantially. Um, and, and so that's, that, that, you know, it's, it's ironic because Luther and Erasmus kind of end up being uh, portrayed as enemies, but Luther very much used Erasmus's Greek New Testament to translate into the German which I was just listening to this again. I mean, it's Reformation time, right? So we have all this Luther stuff that's in the air. Just listening to this again about how Luther translating the, uh, the Bible into German, he actually had to create words to try to communicate what the text said in some places. And so, you know, there, is a, there, there are people out there who are like, like, yeah, Luther created the modern German language. That's probably a bit of a stretch, but uh, heavily influential. The same way Shakespeare is so influential for English, creating words and images that we continue to use to this day. You know, hoisted on his own petard. You know, probably only weirdos like me use that one, but... It's called Hopefully. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So, did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So what I hope that we'll see is that uh, what Paul is doing is he's concluding his points about the identity of Israel um, being rooted in faith, the inclusion of the Gentiles in Israel, and the overall em emphasis of salvation being dependent upon God's doing, not our doing. And that he's beginning a section uh, looking at the interrelationship of God's law, the inability to achieve righteousness by works by the law, and the, uh, the work, and the word, excuse me, as a means of grace to deliver faith and salvation. So any questions before I jump into the text itself? All right. Romans 9, 30 through 33. What shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? 
because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. So I had a little bit of cognitive dissonance when I first read this, because um, this, this opening statement, uh, what therefore shall we say, um, Paul uses this multiple times throughout the book. It is a, um, it's a rhetorical device that was and is common. Um, but the, uh, the multiple times that he uses it before, four times he uses it before this, he always answers it with a question. A question that expects a negative answer. And so if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, um, you know, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, to have found according to the flesh? And then he, he leads into this whole conversation about the works and, you know, and faith. Is it by works or is it by faith? Well, no, it's not by works, it's by faith. This one's even more clear in chapter 6. What should we say then? Should we continue to sin that grace may multiply? <laughs> exactly. And, and his answer is this very blunt, no way. You know, I mean, that, that would be a really good way to translate what's in the text there. Just no way. Uh, or, or chapter 7, verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? You know, he, he's, t he's taking us to the negative. Um, what should we say then? Earlier in this very same chapter, uh, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? No way. And then he goes on, and, he, and, and in this case, he does it differently. He asks the question, and then he brings a statement. This is what we should say. Um, and, uh, and, he, he, and this is one of the reasons I think it's a, it's a new section. He's doing something different. Um, the, the, uh, uh, when, when you look at this, uh, he goes right into, this is what we should say. And my translation, uh, Gentiles, it's either who were not pursuing righteousness or while not pursuing righteousness, uh, obtained righteousness, but a righteousness that is by faith. Um, that, uh, Pursuing righteousness is a participle. It could either serve to, like an adjective to describe the people that it's talking about, or it could serve to set the context of what's going on. Uh, frankly, most uh, translations translate it as describing the people. That the Gentiles, who were not pursuing righteousness, uh, obtained it. Um, I also noticed that a lot of, uh, a lot of translations uh, didn't always translate the word righteousness because it's kind of redundant. You know, three times just in the one line there. And uh, I don't think that Paul chose to do that on accident. I think he's, you know, driving a point. You know, they weren't pursuing righteousness, but they obtained righteousness, but it's a righteousness that comes by faith. Uh, it's Romans 3 you know, 21 through, uh, through 31, all over again. But now a righteousness apart from the law has come from outside of us and, and, and all of that. He's saying that's what the Gentiles have. And then he continues, he says, but Israel, and you have the same thing with the participle there, um, while pursuing uh, righteousness, or who pursued righteousness, um, a law of righteousness in the law did not attain it, or they did not come to it. Uh, so Paul uses different words for the Gentiles getting righteousness and Israel's failure to getting righteousness. And I don't know if this, I don't know if this actually means anything, um, but I find it interesting. It says that the Gentiles, while not pursuing, you know, it's the same word, pursuing and pursuing, um, while not pursuing, they, the word kind of means to take hold of, to grasp. It, it very much has this feeling of, of um, uh, you know, getting your hands on something. Uh, and then uh, Israel, while pursuing, did not come upon, they didn't reach it, righteousness. It has a different, I, I don't know, do you think I'm, I'm just like grasping at straws here? I think they have a different feel to them. It's like, you know, righteousness came to the Gentiles and it's like, grab it. And you have this picture of Israel 
coming and striving and they're trying to get there and they just can't get it. And, uh, and, and so I, I kind of I wonder if there isn't a little bit of Genesis 3 in, in, in Paul's thinking here that, you know, Adam and Eve standing at the tree of life, um, did God really say? And Eve stretches out her hand to take the fruit. You know, maybe a, a, an image of that. You know, that sometimes if we're striving and trying to come to righteousness by faith, it's the same thing as, you know, you're, you're stretching, you're stretching, you're stretching, and you just can't quite get there. But if you're living by faith, it's just, you got it. Both hands taken hold of it. <clears throat> yeah, so we have to pursue it by faith. Um, I, I, I'm going to be careful because to say we have to pursue it, we don't pursue it, uh, we live by faith and it comes to us, yes. might be a better, because I mean the, the, yeah. the picture of the Gentiles here is, you know, the Jews are like, these people, they, they've done nothing right. Remember Jesus, you know, talking about the tax collectors and the sinners, and, and yes. then he's talking to the Pharisees, and he, and he says, you're shut out of the kingdom, and the kingdom is coming to these people because they're living in faith, and they're not trying to justify themselves by their works. Okay. Now, the rest of the with stumbling kind of is an interesting parable because if you're stumbling and bumbling, you press. Um, but if you don't think you are, yeah, yeah. I didn't make that connection, but that is a really good one. Um, and, and that idea of stumbling, you know, he, he gets in there with the, the passages from Isaiah. And uh, that, that's, yeah, they're, they're, they're trying to get there and, and they're the stumbling blocks. And the stumbling blocks are their sin and their inability to live up to what God has called them to do and be. Yeah? I'm still thinking that it relies on them, that it's their works and following the law. Yeah. And they're never going to be able to reach it that way. Right. Whereas the Gentiles, here it is, okay, great. You know, they didn't, they, the law becomes a stumbling block to the Jews because they think they have to do it to get righteousness. The Gentiles don't have that. They yeah. come into that preconceived notion. And, and maybe even the Gentiles come into it with, there's no hope. I, I can't do this. You know, I'm, I, it's completely separated. I have no business here. This has nothing to do with me. And all of a sudden, boom, I have it. You know, it's, it's like finding treasure. Um, and, and you had no expectation to get it. You have no right to get it. And yet, there it is. Exactly. Yeah. So... Yeah, uh, for some of them, anyhow. Um, right. You know. Um, so I think about the. Yeah, I think about the the conversation Jesus had with some of the Jews. We read this a couple weeks ago, where he says, "If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed," and they're offended by that. We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. Did you ever read the book of Exodus? You know, this is kind of a big part of your, your, your ancestry and your identity. You know, and, uh, um, you know, and so they, they take the pride and say, you know, we're children of Abraham. And apparently not even remembering that they were slaves for 400 years in, in Egypt and that God rescued them and their relationship with him is rooted yeah, and God calling Abraham, you know, come from the place to a, and go to a place I will show you, walk by faith with me, in other words, to, you know, all of a sudden they're in this slavery and he comes with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and he rescues them. Do they, do they un, is it they're um, interpreting the word slave correctly? Because we are all slaves to sin. Um, they had Passover every year. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, the, the reminder is there, right, right. but they're not seeing themselves that way. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Is, is there, are they 
the description of slave, are they distorting that? I, I don't know. I, I mean, if they're reading Exodus, I don't know how they get another image. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, we're not going to give you straw for your bricks anymore. You've got to get it yourself, right? Sure. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. What was their status during the Babylonian exile? Weren't most of them enslaved at that point, too? My understanding of what happened in the Babylonian exile is, I mean, they weren't like, you know, the highest of society or anything, but it they basically got moved and they lived and they got new trades and so they weren't the elite of society but you know to say that they were slaves would probably be a bit of a stretch you know in the classic sense of thinking you know a slave is connected to a master you know they're more like slaves like you know everybody you know is a slave to the king so but they're working their trades they have their own homes in the Babylonian captivity. And so God tells them, you know, pray for the prosperity of the city that you're in. They're like, but no, we want to go back to Jerusalem. He's like, shut up. Pray for the prosperity where you are. Set down roots. Live. You know. Nancy. Would the Gentiles even been aware of the law when they keep the faith? Have the faith and then the law? Only insofar as the law is written on our hearts. So all of us have a sense of the law. Um, you know, that there's right and that there's wrong. And uh, this is something that, uh, that people rebel mightily against, that there is, especially today, um, that there's any sense of right or wrong, you know, objectively speaking. Um, but the thing that I always find is that if you steal somebody from who believes there's no such thing as right or wrong, they feel cheated. You know, it, it, it is, it's, it's baked into who we are. It's part of our creation. And so the law is written on our hearts, and yeah, we can harden that and darken it. That's Romans 1, right? It, but nevertheless, it, as it continues through Romans 1, it talks about our consciences either excusing or accusing us. And everybody's conscience accuses them at some point, and that's that law that's written on our hearts. The law was Right. But the law, you know, so when you look at the Ten Commandments, that is a good and faithful reflection of the law that's written on our hearts. You know, looking at our relationship with God, looking at our relationship with our neighbor. Uh, you know, so how do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? Well, it looks like this, Commandments 1, 2, and 3. Well, how do you love your neighbor as yourself? That looks a lot like 4 through 10, if you number them like Lutherans do. Um, but... Uh, um, the thing that's going on also with the Jewish people at this time, particularly among the Pharisees, is that they've put rules on top of the rules. You know, so they, they, you know, they've actually distanced themselves from the law and they've put their own traditions above the law. But it's still there. Um, so Israel, while pursuing righteousness, uh, a righteousness of the, uh, the law, um, in the law did not come to it, did not attain it. Because of why. You know, that, that's the literal, you know, but why is that is a, a great English translation. Uh, and again, notice Paul's using questions to move us forward. Um, and he flat out says, because not from faith, but as from works. That's what the actual Greek text says. Notice then, if you look up in um, uh, verse 32, the English translation says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. Translation is always the first step of interpretation. I mean, why not? Because not from faith, but as from works. That's kind of a rough statement, you know. So in order to bring it across in a good and smooth way, um, the translators said, you know, not by faith. What? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. They didn't pursue this righteousness of God by faith. But they came at it as if it were by works. And it says, they stumbled or they struck against the stone of stumbling. Now, I love this translation that uh, um, the... Christian um, 
standard version does here where they say they stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is, I think, beautifully correct. Other translations, they try to, you know, well, that's kind of redundant. No, I think that's what Paul's trying to say. You know, he is trying to be redundant because he's trying to kind of knock you upside the head and, and you know, get your attention with this. Um, that being said, a stumbling stone, uh, that is an interesting word, and we're going to come back to it, but it's the word scandalon, where you hear the word scandal. Um, but we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, just as it is written, um, notice that God's word, his written word, is authoritative. You know, so when we come to, uh, when, we, when we're dealing with God's word, um, it, we don't come at it uh, from the sense of, I've heard a word from the Lord. Um, next weekend, we get to see one of our favorite comedians, Tim Hawkins. Um, and he has this bit where he's, he, he talks about, you know, people who, you know, they hear God and God gave me this song. God gave me this song and it's awful. And it's awful. And, and you know, but God gave me this song and I have to sing it. And, and, and his line is, God gave you that song, give it back. <laughs> we, we, we don't hold to this idea that, that God does direct revelation among us anymore. Now, did I say he can't give direct revelation? No, I did not say that. But he has given us a written revelation. And so if somebody experiences something that they feel is a direct revelation, how do they know? You take it to the written revelation, the written word, and you compare it, and does it match up, and does it fit with what God has given to us in the written word? The written word is always authoritative. Um, and this is how Paul is treating it. He says, Behold, I said in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of scandal or a rock of offense, and the one believing in him uh, will not be put to shame, will not be humiliated. So he's quoting two passages here, conflating them like he did earlier. Um, and uh, in Isaiah 8, verse 14, he says, God will be a sanctuary, but for, those, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's, he's speaking in judgment. You know, um, according to this passage, who is Israel's problem? God is, yeah. He's like, they walked away and boy, oh boy, are they going to regret that because now they're going to be dealing with me. And I'm going to make myself obnoxious to them. They're going to trip and they're going to be trapped and they're going to be snared and they're going to be left powerless and guess who they're going to have to deal with. That's, that's the way he's talking here. And then the other passage is Isaiah 28, verse 16. Where he says, therefore, the Lord God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. So he brings these together and he talks about this stumbling stone of, of scandal. We usually translate that as offense, but scandal is kind of a gorgeous word, isn't it? When you think about, you know, if somebody's scandalized... You know, they're, oh, right? It's just, it, I mean, it goes to the core if somebody's scandalized. And this is what he's saying, is that, you know, they're going to be shaken to the core. You know, they think that their, their righteousness depends upon themselves. He's going to pull the carpet out from underneath them. They're going to fall. They're, you know, it, it, and where are they going to have to go? He's like, to me. Um, and then, you know, he continues with this idea that the one believing in him will not be put to shame or humiliated. Um, it, a little interesting translation thing going on there uh, in, in Isaiah 28, 16. Uh, the one who believes will be unshakable. You know, in other words, you're on a really solid foundation. And that's the, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, if, if you're not going to be put to shame, it means you're standing on the right foundation. 
Now, did anybody notice anything that I did interpretively with my translation right up there? You know what I'm talking about, where I translated, right, right at that, that line above, where, you know, where I have in bold, Isaiah 8, verse 14, uh, that, that quotation, Behold, I set in Zion a stone. That's my translation of what it says in Romans. Because I was complaining about this earlier, just, you know, got to be fair. I did something interpretively in terms of the way that I laid that out for you. Okay. Um, say that again. You said he will be a stone, stumble, or stumbling. Okay. But that's within the range, right? A rock and a stone. Yeah, but you thought he meant to say it. Yeah, that's okay. But I did something else. I did something more egregious. After the, uh, after the comma. Did God put the stone there to stumble over? No, that's in the text. That's in the text itself. This, this, this is a style thing. I interpreted something for you just by the way that I wrote it there. Take a look at that word, him. It's capitalized. So it's referring to Jesus. Did Isaiah even know the name Jesus? No. But he knew this Messiah was coming. And I would stand by that in terms of, you know, a good stylized way to put that. But I just wanted to point that out in the sense of the way that we write things and the way that we organize them is going to influence the way that we see them and the way that we understand them. And so when we read our Bibles, there are, there are stylized things that are in there. And I'm not saying this is bad. I, in fact, I'm saying that this is normal and it is part of how we translate. Um, but it is interpretation. Are, are you with me? Or am I, am I just giving you problems you don't need? <laughs> yeah, Lord, all capitalized. That is, uh, that, that's the name Yahweh. Uh, except that the Israelites would not say the word Yahweh, and, um, and so they would pronounce it differently. They, uh, there's another word, Lord, um, in Hebrew, that is the word Adonai. And uh, while there aren't vowels, per se, in Hebrew, which makes it very interesting to translate, um, they took those vowel sounds from Adonai and they put it on the, uh, the consonant sounds of Yahweh and you get Yehovah or the name Jehovah. That's where Jehovah comes from. And, uh, and so what we've done is we've recognized, okay, that is God's proper name. You know, he is, is what Yahweh literally means. Going back to the burning bush, God says, I am who I am. And if, you know, and if I say I am, you know, the right thing to say is, yeah, he is, right? So that's God's name among the Israelites, is he is. But they, they conflated these two words to get Jehovah. And when we see that in the text, we capitalize all four letters. Um, and we even do this on one more step, because sometimes when you read the Old Testament, you will see the Lord God, and it's translated or it's all caps the whole way through. And that means that it was, um, uh, uh, well, Yahweh Adonai. No, Yahweh Elohim. Uh, you know, it's got both of God's names put together. And, you know, and so it's all caps because it's big. Uh, I don't know. Um, but it, it symbolizes that, you know, you've got that name that's there. We use the style to communicate. Um, what, we're, what we're trying to say. So when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, before Abraham was, I am, yeah. is he actually taking the name of Jehovah? 
explicitly there? Yeah. Yeah, I think he is. And I think they got it, right? Oh, they got it. Because their next response is to pick up stones to, yeah. to stone him. Yeah. And when you read through the Gospel of John, you know, he's got, you know, I am the door. I am the bread of life. I think that over and over again, he is taking God's name for himself and connecting it to an image to help us to understand how he is dealing with us as, you know, God. But, yeah, people, sometimes they're like, Jesus never said he was God. And there is a half-truth in that. He never flat out says, I'm God, you should fall down and worship me. Um, but the people who were there, oh, they did, and they were not happy. You know, so sometimes if you want to know what somebody was saying, you know, check the, check the response of the people who originally heard it, right? Because we've got all these centuries in between, and, you know, and we're like, what's the big deal? You know, it's just, you know, the weird thing is, you know, the kind of the, the verb tense, you know, that's strange. <laughs> uh, no, there's more going on there. You know, he just said, I am who I am, and yeah. Now this, this idea of a, uh, of a stone that's set in Zion, a scandal, um, all of this, Jesus takes that language to himself. And I think that's really important that Paul, you know, using this language, it's not just that he is pointing us to Isaiah, he is pointing us to Jesus. So I have a summary here of Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to walk this through with you, if that's okay. Um, in Matthew chapter 21, it starts with the triumphal entry. Jesus comes in. There's all kinds of symbol, symbolism that's connected to it that we don't have time to get into today. Riding on a donkey, the people crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. you got that son of David stuff that's connected back to the psalm that we were talking about before. You know, this Messiah type of language. Uh, the word Hosanna is actually an Aramaic word. It's a double entendre. On the one hand, um, it means, um, uh, uh, well, it literally means, please save us. You know, please save us, son of David. Um, but there's also, this was the prayer of the Israelites when they were in captivity. And after they came back from captivity, when God had saved them, it became a word of praise but it's still very much salvation, okay? And he's coming into Jerusalem, and then he comes in, he cleanses the temple, and after that, you've got the little children coming to praise him, and uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Pharisees, again, and the priests, they get it. Uh, they're offended by this idea, Hosanna to the son of David, uh, the salvation stuff. And, uh, uh, after that, on the way to and from Jerusalem, Jesus curses a fig tree. And there's some symbolism that's connected to that, that Israel was supposed to bear fruit, and they didn't. And then Jesus' authority is challenged. And in response to his authority being challenged, he tells two parables. Uh, the first one's really simple. It's a parable of two sons. The, uh, the father says, uh, son, go work in the vineyard. The first one, uh, he says, you know, I, I don't want to, but later he changed his mind and he went. And then the second one said, I will. And then he didn't. And Jesus asked the question, which one did the father's will? And the obvious answer being the one that actually went out and worked. Not the one who said, you know, it's, it's not about the, the, you know, saying the right things to, to satisfy God. It's about, you know, doing the things that he's, you know, he wants done. And he speaks this word of judgment. Uh, this would be uh, in verse 31 where there's that weird break. Um, it, I'm not, it's a paragraph, I think. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds and believe him. Change your minds means repent. You know, so he's already saying, uh, you've tripped up. 
And then he tells the parable of the vineyard owner. And this one really gets them. Um, and uh, he asks the question, you know, what's the owner going to do? He will completely destroy those terrible men. He's going to lease the vineyard to other farmers who will give him the fruit of the harvest. And Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done and is wonderful in our eyes. There's a stone that they have stumbled over. And he continues, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they knew he was speaking about them. And although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. Paul is saying, that scandal on, that stone of stumbling that Israel stumbled over is Jesus. And the Gentiles received him and believed him. And therefore they received righteousness. But Israel, because they did not, fell short. So, um, thank you for your, your patience going through this. Uh, I'll be back in February um, at the end of the month to come back to Romans. I'm going to go torment, I mean teach uh, the, uh, the teens uh, in confirmation class for the next few weeks. I get to do the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer with them. Uh, good, good stuff. Um, in, the, in the meantime, Bob is going to be in here and he's going to be looking at the appointed scripture readings. I'm just kind of studying those together. That should be pretty good, uh, interesting stuff. Um, in the meantime, keep your eyes open for a, an announcement for a Bible reading plan that uh, I'm working on. Um, I used to do this read through the Bible in a year thing, um, and uh, I, I like that idea, but sometimes that just feels too aggressive for me um, because you have to do it every single day which is probably a good thing. But then I get tired and I get annoyed that I have to do this. And I don't wanna be annoyed that I have to read the Bible. Um, so I'm gonna to put together a plan where we read five days a week. That means that if you miss a day, you've got a little bit of grace, you can catch up. Um, and uh, um, I'm planning on putting uh, like a weekly, just a little email type of a thing, not, not a whole commentary type of a thing, but you know, maybe a couple thoughts of things to look for and, and things like that. Uh, but there'll be announcements about that in the bulletin coming up. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that we can be here. We thank and praise you for your word and for people who translate it and make it sound good so that we can understand what you're saying to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would, uh, that you would bless us as we hear your word. Please bless Bob as he teaches in here and help him to share the, the good news of the messages of the, of the scriptures that are appointed for each Sunday. And I pray your blessings on um, myself as I go to teach the uh, confirmation class. And we pray that your spirit would be upon all of us to help us to hear and to believe your word. In Jesus' name, amen.